Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The LibFest Salons aim to provide provocative, relevant discussions in a dynamic and informal way. There's food, drink, and good old-fashioned audience participation. On June 14, 2012, the topic of the salon was endurance in the long-distance writer. The featured writers were Kimberly McClintock, Phyllis Barber, and Stephen Schwartz. Just when you thought LitFest couldn't get any festier, we have our final salon tonight, Endurance and the Long Distance Writer. And don't tell any of the other salons this, but this is the one, well, uh, except for your guys's, that... that I've been most looking forward to. Any other salon panelists? <laughs> and we're going to cut that from the podcast. Um, <laughs> and except for David Rothman's poetry uh, salon, um, <laughs> which was also my favorite, along with the um, writing with a gun to your head salon, which others in the audience um, presented. So um, this one, I think all of us who have been um, burdened with maybe more slow twitch muscle fiber than, than fast, which I've learned in my two-week tenure on the Lighthouse softball team, not so good a sprinter. But I could run the bases for like five years. Okay, so we're going to start with Phyllis Barber. I'm not doing any kind of order. It's just proximity. And the lovely Phyllis Barber is an author and teacher of fiction and creative nonfiction with seven books to her name. Um, and, and some of them are on sale back there. How many? We've got... Um, yeah. We've got three of Phyllis's. Um, the latest being Raw Edges, a memoir from the University of Nevada Press. Uh, she won the Associated Writing Program Award Series Prize in Creative Nonfiction in 1991 for How I Got Cultured. Is that back there? A Nevada memoir. I suggest reading one and then reading the other. And what's the third one? And finishing with that one. Oh. Her first and all. I mean, she does everything. And she's gorgeous. I mean, whatever. Um, okay. Next to her is Stephen Schwartz. He's the author of five books, including the novels Therapy, which is an outstanding book. I've read it. And A Good Doctor's Son, and the forthcoming collection of stories, Little Raw Souls. He teaches in the MFA writing program at Colorado State University and in the low residency Warren Wilson MFA program. He is a fiction editor for the Colorado Review. His blog on writing and other subjects can be found. Are you ready? At stephenschwartzbooks.com. And I'm going to bookmark bookmark that. And you, uh, which books of Stephen's are back there? I forgot to Oh, just, just, just saying that you order them. Order them from Tatter Cover. We have order slips and stuff, don't we? We're going to order them. We will order them. And um, you don't remember that. 
Nobody remembers that. Please remove that from the podcast. Um, And last but not least, the lovely Kimberly McClintock, who holds an MFA degree from Warren Wilson. She is the recipient of their Levis Prize for 2009. She's at work um, on a book of poems and a novel. And who better to tell us about endurance and the long-distance writer than these three? And what we're going to do is each of you are going to take a moment to... Say your piece, and then um, chaos will ensue after that. So, do yeah, and do we want? Do you guys want the stand? Okay, and I'll get the stand. When somebody hold this, and I'll go get the mic. Thank you. got my hearing aids on and my reading glasses and <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> I have been, I'm the oldest one here so I can talk about endurance, right? Well, it's simple, isn't it? To write means to sit down with a pen and a paper or a laptop and put words on a page or a screen. Nothing to it, right? Straightforward, simple matter. But, oh yes, the big but. In truth, the business of writing is very complicated. For me, the desire to write is cluttered with roadblocks and detours that interfere with my simple desire to write. Because of these annoying hindrances, which I sometimes think of as irksome demons with horns and three-pronged spears, writing often feels unholy to me, messier than is good for anybody. It's true that writing requires endurance, courage, patience, forbearance. And yes, it's also true that endurance isn't especially pretty. It isn't for the faint of heart. So, hazards pop up along the highway to good riding, potholes slow you down and break your axle, and the road construction people hold up those red flags, and they all mess with your dreams of getting somewhere anytime soon. So, sometimes I've tried to ignore all of this, but over the years I've found that when I'm aware of the potholes and the personal demons and face them head on, unafraid and with my eyes wide open, I'm number one, safer, I don't fall into the holes. And number two, I have a clearer, smoother relationship with my writing, hence a much better chance of keeping on, keeping on. Because of this confrontation, I've learned to give less credence to the ceaseless chatter, mumbling, nattering, or nagging about how I'm not good enough or successful enough. The chatter goes on, there's no escape, but I've been able to turn down the volume. Remember that forward movement engenders resistance, period. That's part of the process. In that light, I'm going to tell you the five points of resistance I've battled with as I've macheted through the grass and slogged through the mountain trails toward my dreams of being awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So, just remember that resistance is part of the process and forward movement engenders resistance. So, five roadblocks. The first one, for me, I've been thinking about these a lot. This has been a fun exercise. Am I really a writer, or am I only fooling myself? I've taught students for over 30 years, and I've noticed there are those who are waiting for someone else to verify the fact that they are indeed a writer. Tell me I've got some talent. Tell me I'm good. 
then I can go home and tell my family or my boyfriend that I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> so, some of these students laugh nervously when they say the word writer in the same sentence as they say, I am. In addition, they imagine that there's an absolute correct way of being a writer. And if only they could learn that absolutely correct way, they'd be home free. They'd find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, ka-ching, if only. Students aren't the only ones who do this. Even as I prepared these words, there was a little voice in my head that said, who are you to talk? You haven't been on the New York Times bestseller list. You haven't won the National Book Award or even been nominated for it. The little voice says, I don't deserve to be up here telling people how to endure, even though I've been writing, publishing, and winning awards for almost 40 40 decades. Four decades. (laughs) Liar, liar. (laughs) I'm really Methuselah. (laughs) Come to haunt you. (laughs) Okay, well, the best disclaimer, uh, the best antidote to this disclaimer is to busy yourself learning all you can about the craft of writing and the writing process. And all the time that you're learning, remember to write what you want to write, not what someone else writes. Why be a bad copy of another writer? Respect the craft by all means, but also respect you, your worldview, your idiosyncrasies. Think of Picasso, who learned the rules of painting, then broke them with daring boldness and panache. Think of Maurice Sendak and where the wild things are with those scary, lovely monsters that hadn't existed before he did. Think of William Faulkner and his tidal wave of language and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and his magical way of seeing everyday life. Tell the story you want to tell. Tell it the way you want to tell it. Be your original self. So, first of all, accept the basic premise, I am a writer. Now, will you say after me? I am a writer. And you laugh nervously. (laughs) And if I don't write my story or poem... No one else will. Okay, roadblock number two, unstated obligations. Why do I write anyway? Are there any peripheral unstated obligations that I've taken on? Well, my father wanted to be a writer, and he talked about it a lot. And uh, as a child, I heard him talking and talking, and he actually published a few pieces in Sunset Magazine, and he was, he was good. But I became the child who took up uh, where he left off. I accepted the transference of his wish and went about making it a reality. But all the time, I think it nagged me that my father didn't make it, so I probably wouldn't either. But just who asked me to pick up the baton and run with it? No one, really. Did I really want to be a writer, or was I doing it out of some unspoken, unasked-for obligation to my father who couldn't achieve his dream, the dutiful daughter trying to please Daddy? One day, after carrying this burden for quite a few years, I finally sat down and had a serious talk with myself. Do you, Phyllis, really want to be a writer? Or are you just doing it out of some nervousness about your father not being able to realize himself? Only after answering this question honestly could I accept full responsibility for my choice. No one else made me do it. My father would be all right if I didn't pick up the baton. I was the one who'd taken on the challenge of becoming a first-class writer. It was my bag to carry, no one else's. So, I think you might have some of these in your past or in your life, and I think it's important to know why you're writing and know what you want to accomplish and what you want from this pursuit. So, roadblock number three, perfectionism. Are you handcuffed to the chain-leak fence of perfectionism? Who do you think you have to be to be a writer? Do you need to rival 
Cormac McCarthy, Toni Morrison, Flannery O'Connor, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, to name a few of my favorites. If you don't rise to that level, are you worthless? As for me, and <laughs> I can all go home now. <laughs> As for me and this fine perfectionism, I've always had a strong urge to be creative. This is large and huge in me, and if I don't listen to this urge, I feel famished, dehydrated, and incomplete. Before I was a writer, I was a pianist thinking seriously about being a concert pianist. But then, of course, I had four children. <laughs> Silly girl. So, <laughs> But as I practiced playing the piano, I worked up to three to six hours every day, and so I got used to that. It kind of got ingrained in me. So the idea of polishing a piece of music until it shines, glitters, and glows did something, however, which made me a sort of a performer to my own self. Some idea that I, what I was doing couldn't possibly be good until I worked it to death. Perfectionism took the upper hand. I lost my spontaneity. I actually stopped playing seriously because this was sucking the joy of music right out of me. So one can definitely get lost in the ego of perfectionism. So one of the things that has kept me going is to remind myself to look past the idea of being perfect. Who defines perfect anyway? Who's the keeper of the definition? Then I remember to laugh, to be odd, to write embarrassing things. I coax the wild child in me who loves to dance to come out in the open to sing goofy songs and to push past that shy self so afraid of being discovered as less than perfect. Make friends with your perfectionism, but don't let it take over. Roadblock number four, wishing to be something other than you are. Do you dream of being somebody more interesting, beautiful, intelligent, or mysterious, hip, or funky? I know that I have. Often feeling too shy, too tall, too sensitive, too blah, blah, blah. So, at one particular point in time, it became important to have another conference with myself who wasn't happy with the fact that I was turning away and trying to replace me with something better. I'd been trying to write what I imagined to be New Yorker stories, even though I grew up in a a small-town girl from Nevada and knew nothing about big city living. I'd been pushing to write things I thought would impress the writing powers that be, such as teachers, agents, advisors, publishers, etc., I had to dig deep with the questions, what do I care about and what in the world matters to me? What would I most like to contribute to all those pages being published out there? What is my oddness again, my weirdness, my embarrassment, as well as my evil queen pride that no one else should know about, but which may be the most interesting thing about me? This is all reminiscent of the old folk tale about looking for the pearl of great price, the man goes the world over to find the pearl and then discovers at the end, when he's tired and old, that the pearl is buried in his own backyard. It's a Sunday school story. So number five, being caught in the web of narcissism. Do you catch yourself gazing into the pool at your own reflection? <laughs> Do you think you just may be the most sensitive writer who ever lived? <laughs> An unbelievably fabulous writer who just hasn't been acknowledged or has, or has received what this royalty deserves. You're laughing, you have felt this. <laughs> Are you letting this mirror mirror on the wall stand in the way of writing all of what you want to write? It's been important for me to recognize this wide, narcissistic streak in myself, to acknowledge the flaming, inconsolable, starving ego that would be queen of the bestseller list. Dramatists abound in all of us, I suspect, and we all tread that precarious line between too much self-effacement and a secret belief that if only the world could see us clearly, 
they would bow. Keeping busy is the mind's job, of course, so it entertains itself by brewing these strange concoctions. When I notice my mind revving up with a thousand things it needs to tell me about shaping up, I now refrain and say, hey, you're back. Nice to see you again, narcissism or perfectionism or obligation or regret. Then I go to my desk, open my laptop, and keep on writing. There's a golden mean, a balance. The Tao Te Ching reminds us to empty your mind of everything, let the mind become still. This is possible, but don't wait for perfection or enlightenment. Keep writing. So, it helps when you get something published, when someone asks you to submit a piece to their magazine, when someone writes a fan letter, when you get a royalty check, when someone gives you a thumbs up or mention in a newsletter or book review. All of that helps. But one of the biggest payoffs is to feel satisfied with something you've written and revised for many days and months, something you've made beautiful or praisey. Praisey, praiseworthy. Mm. (laughs) Praisey's good, I like that. (laughs) Except true confession. That's not the total payoff. Showing your work to someone and having them swoon and do handstands is the best. It's true. I'll leave you with a trick that I have and a piece of advice. My trick is, when I'm really feeling down about writing and think it's terrible, and I don't think about this, I just do it. I say, I hate writing, and I find somebody who's my friend or my husband or somebody like that. I'll say, I hate it. I'm never, ever going to do it again. It's the stupidest thing in the whole world, and it means nothing to me. It's insignificant. It's superfluous. And then I go to bed and to sleep, having surrendered to the la- at last to the thing that puts up resistance every step of the way. Oh, joy to be free from the ogre that makes me write. But alas, when I wake up the next morning, I'm ready to go all over again. (laughs) And here's the advice. And this is something Winston Churchill said, and you'll see it on billboards. Never, 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 I don't know how many nevers give up. I don't know how many that you need to say, but just add a beat, snap your fingers, never, 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 (laughs) and you'll be all right. Forty decades, huh? <laughs> I'm I'm really honored to be following Grandma Moses. <laughs> I have a, a lecture here. It takes about two hours and thirty minutes. I, I hope that's uh, not too short. No, this uh, takes about ten minutes, and uh, you're probably going to hear a lot of overlap among us, and that's a good thing because this particular subject needs to be reinforced. Your story started off well and then went south. You can do better. My professor and graduate writing workshop at the University of Arizona waded through a few tepid comments about my first story, some good images, a few funny lines, a sort of intriguing female protagonist, and then he weighed in. I don't think there's much else to say about this piece. Let's move on. (laughs) Gulp. At break, having just experienced the embarrassment of hearing my story, My very first story ever submitted to my very first writing workshop was not even worthy of discussion. I slunk out of the room. I knew no one in the program. I transferred in mid-year. Literally, people were avoiding me, separating to make room on my way to the bathroom, (laughs) where I splashed water on my face, stared in the mirror, and considered jumping out the third-floor window. If only I could be certain it would do more than cripple me. 
I wasn't sure I could go back into that classroom. Wasn't this the very thing that I dreaded? Public humiliation, destructive criticism? Oh, wait, there was no criticism. The story hadn't been worthwhile enough to warrant any. (laughs) A young man in wireframe glasses came into the bathroom. He was one of my fellow workshop members. I'm Rick, he said. I liked your story. Surely, he jested. Is it always like this, I asked? Sometimes worse. I wouldn't take it too seriously. You'll get used to it. I feel like putting a gun to my head, I said. (laughs) I've done that, he said. I gaped at him. Just to to see what it feels like, he said. I wasn't serious, though I do know a woman who took her novel manuscript outside, roped it to a tree, and shot it six times with a forty-five. She had some other issues, too. Anyway, you'll survive. We all do. Have you ever been to Alaska, he asked. My story had been set there. No, I said. I didn't think so. Still, there's something there. Don't give up on it. You ready? I came back to class and sat mute for the rest of the period, wondering if my face looked as red and hot as it felt. That was 30 years ago, and amazingly, I'm still here. So let's be honest. We're not as weak and sensitive as we think. Otherwise, we would have, make that I would have given up long ago. That day, I went home from my workshop, told my girlfriend I'd made a mistake and that I didn't belong in the program. I'd been exposed. Fortunately, she wouldn't let me pack up the car and skip town as I insisted. I read over my professor's comment. Your story started off well, then went south. You can do better. Was there any truth in it? Not that I could see. Or make that not that I could see at the moment because I couldn't imagine what do better meant. I'd given the story my all. You can do better, but how? The problem was I worried I couldn't. As one of my classmates put it back then about his own writing, I'm afraid I'll knock and nobody will be home. But a year later, after I survived my initiation and handed in a couple of stories better received, I took out that first story, which might as well have had the mark of Cain on it for how cursed it felt, (laughs) looked it over quickly, trashed all but the first three pages of the 15-page story, And with the brazen determination that writers need to slash and burn their way to the hidden heart of a story, I rewrote it. Two months later, I sent the new version off. In Miracle of Miracles, it became my first publication in the not-too-shabby Antioch Review. I'd learned the first really important precept of being a writer. You have to save yourself in this business over and over and over again. So, how's that done? Well, first, let's look at what you need to save yourself from. Mostly, that's yourself. (laughs) Your own fears and doubts. And what form does this come in? Make that forms, because fears and doubts keep transmuting into other fears and doubts. For instance, you sit down at your desk, ready to work, and then you remember you haven't watered the plants. (laughs) Back at your desk, just as you place your fingers on the keyboard, it occurs to you that you forgot to make a dental appointment for your youngest child. That done, it took 20 minutes because they had you on hold. You finally cleaned the coffee stain up from two weeks ago on your desk, and now you're ready, but it appears as a rainstorm coming, and you have to close all the windows and make sure the car windows aren't open either, even though it's unlikely since the car is in the garage. (laughs) But never mind. You check it anyway. 
And then there's a little matter of dead flies on your windowsill. How did they get there? Here comes the dustbuster. Vroom. You, you get the point. This sort of procrastination can go on forever. And let's not even talk about Facebook, email, Twitter, iTunes, Angry Birds, Words with Friends, not to mention looking up the ex-boyfriend on classmates.com. To paraphrase, it's the resistance, stupid. It's resistance because you're afraid of failure. It's resistance because you're afraid of failing again. It's resistance because you're afraid of failing after finally succeeding. Who wants to go back to what it felt like? (laughs) It's resistance because you believe erroneously there is a correlation between your moods and the quality of writing you will produce when, in fact, there is no such connection. And you will never be in a good mood to write until you start writing. It's resistance because you're a bad mother and should be devoting your precious time to your children. It's resistance because you're a bad father and should do more around the house so your wife won't feel like a bad mother. (laughs) It's resistance because you could be making money at a real job. In an essay called Just Still Writing, the author Ann Tyler talks about starting out as a writer while trying to raise a family. Another mother asked her at the playground, have you found work yet or are you still just writing? Yes, yes, the just writing syndrome. It's resistance because of the dismissive way that people and sometimes we see ourselves in this literary vocation unless we happen to be making bundles of money writing mega commercial bestsellers. It's resistance because we should be getting in shape at the gym, or better shape. After all, we know that working out equals X amount of results. But what does writing equal? Certainly not X amount of results. In fact, is there any other profession that takes such a gamble on productivity? If you're an electrician, chances are you reach a level of skill that you can count on. Likewise, for a doctor, even a musician gets his scales down, but writing, one day you write well, the next poorly. Let's revise that. One sentence you write masterfully, the next is so clunky that its verbosity could choke an entire city to death. (laughs) Talk about the uncertainty principle. Writers live it every day. No wonder we're so full of resistance. So, what's needed to endure? Because I don't know about you, but I plan on doing this until they carry me out or I start talking to invisible parakeets. <laughs> How exactly, I ask myself, have I kept going for more than 30 years in the face of all the obstacles? I can tell you it's not by having success. I once thought that if only I published a story in a respected literary journal, I'd feel like a real writer. And then after that, my validation requirement was, supposed, was up to publishing a book. And then it was two books, and then it was prizes, and then it was, well, it doesn't matter, because all that happened, and I still found myself feeling at times just as paralyzed as I did that first day in workshop when my story was axed. There was a bad review, or a rejection on a new novel, or being dropped by an agent, or envy stopping me dead in my tracks. It didn't matter. The point is that you don't get to a place in this business where your confidence is so great that it outweighs your resistance. You're not grandfathered in so much that you never have doubts. Philip Roth once insisted that his advance, the only thing he seemed to care about, be $1 greater than what John Updike got on his last book. (laughs) And John Updike, for his part, once railed on at a lunch with an editor that his poetry should be taken more seriously. How could either of these writers want more? Yet they did. Writers can be insatiable beasts when it comes to their appetites for recognition, and unfortunately their stomachs keep expanding over time. The antidote to this, besides perhaps meditation, antidepressants, exercise, a supportive family who will indulge you within limits but remind you of your self-worth outside of writing, reset yourself. 
First, get yourself to a place where you have no internet. Short of that, turn off your internet by downloading the virtually free software program called Freedom that will do it for you. (laughs) Second, don't show anyone a draft until you're ready. They're called drafts for a reason. Your eyes and your eyes alone should be on that draft before someone becomes your audience. When you've taken it as far as you can go, when you're finally finished incubating and know that you need help to break the logjam, show it to someone you trust to be honest. Third, right in the morning before you get self-conscious and your critical faculty runs amok with nasty little messages such as you can't write a plot to save your life, your parents, friends, lovers will hate you for betraying them, you can't write humor because the last time you tried, your workshop members thought you were depressed. That is, catch yourself off guard by writing in your journal under the guise that the writing is only for you. Performance anxiety goes away when you eliminate the audience. Fourth, give yourself deadlines as if you had a real job. Make yourself stick to them. Pick someone, a friend or family member, to enforce and reward them. Fifth, forget about your children, elderly parents, hungry spouse, (laughs) demanding cats. They don't exist. Six, accept loneliness, because you will be lonely. But hear this, you'll be lonelier if you don't write. When you're not writing, you feel hollow inside, even when you're surrounded by people. Simply put, there's the loneliness of the work and the loneliness without it. You have to endure one to overcome the other. Seventh, realize that you're writing even when you're not. It's called wool gathering, lying on the couch daydreaming, mulling over a story in the shower, waiting to pick up your kids from school, spacing out in a staff meeting. Give yourself credit for all these. Eight. Eight, stop for the day in the middle of a sentence. Closure, completing a chapter is satisfying, but shuts the door for immediately rebooting your work the next day. Nine, keep multiple drafts going. When you get stuck on one, switch to another. Those drafts are gold. They may look like lead or be leaden, but as with my experience of that first workshop story, taking out something again after time has passed will often be the right moment to make a breakthrough. Expect to write 10 or 20 times what you use. Don't be embarrassed about your obsessions. They're your best allies in this endeavor. 10. Time, time. Too much for writers, as bad as too little. When I quit teaching for a while and thought I'd be a full-time writer, the pressure to produce, the urge to linger over every sentence, the self-consciousness of having my whole identity be writer in capital letters smothered my drive, much like a hovering appearance can stifle a child. Every paragraph appeared to suffer from frog bloat. At the, at the other end, too little, you will need to stand up for time to write because writing, being puny by nature in its gestation stages, will constantly be pushed to the back of the bus otherwise. And speaking of time, patience is fine, but waiting is not. That is, waiting to hear whether your story will be published, waiting for a call from an agent about your novel, waiting for the results... Of a contest, waiting for your friend to finish reading a draft. Start something else immediately. That's all you can control. Time will fly by. Finally, figure out what you want to write, why you want to write in the first place, and why, as the saying goes, you cannot not write. For me, elusive and grandiose as it may have been, it was that I wanted to create something of beauty that was somehow an answer to pain. That's still good enough to keep me going. I'll leave you with two quotations. One is from Jean Rie, who wrote The Wiser Gossip Sea. Listen to me. I want to tell you something very important. All of writing is a huge lake. There are great rivers that feed the lake. 
like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, and there are trickles like Jean Ri. All that matters is feeding the lake. I don't matter. The lake matters. The other quotation is from my wife. She has to repeat it fairly often. <laughs> she has to repeat it fairly often, but it works. Be nice to yourself and keep writing. Great. I'm so excited with all these notes. Um, I was trying to think of a biblical quote to go in with the Grandma Moses on the floor, <laughs> but I couldn't. I didn't have any. Um, for myself, um, I don't have anything finished and in the world yet. Um, so when I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about what got us started on this, by the way, um, was Mary Carr saying she writes for money. Um, she writes her memoir for money and poetry for uh, poetry she used the word inspiration when she was talking about poetry for love Um, so we started talking about the things we do for love and the things we do for other reasons and that's how the panel was born Um, so I've been thinking about the word inspiration and how it's such a dirty word for us and there are quotes to support that endless, endless, endless quotes Um, But I found it useful for myself to distinguish between um, two stages of the work, the actual making and the getting to my desk down the hallway, um, which can some days be a kind of green mile, you know. Um, So I'm going to throw out some some thoughts that um, for me seem for me, seem to be a reasonable, maybe the only reasonable um, concept, reasonable um, use of the concept of inspiration, which is getting myself down the hall to my desk. Because once I get there, the work does take care of itself. But sometimes getting there means playing games with myself. Um, I start with good coffee. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Nothing before 5 o'clock on the weekdays or 3 on the weekends happens without a cup of coffee. Um, Das Bog coffee, (laughs) which means, um, by the way, I looked it up, uh, it's Russian for the god of richness, which I loved. Um, And I also love their motto, which is... um, because Russians make the world's best coffee, you think they'd make... Oh, excuse me. Because Russians make the world's best vodka, you think they'd make a wimpy cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's super cute. So first things first, good coffee, and then a thorough ass-kicking. No, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I think um, if, I, if it did work that way, if, if I could say, cup of coffee in hand now, sit the fuck down, and do it it would be great. I wouldn't have to, there wouldn't be anything more to say um, beyond that. But I don't, and I'm kind of ashamed by that because for years and years and years I've thought that I was pretty good at that. Um, And I don't, I don't, I don't, I still, I still fall into the 
hardcore kind of if I were a real writer, then that would work for me. But inadvertently, as I've been trying to find another way, I've started to follow um, some of the cognitive psych thinking on what what makes people productive and some of the neuroscience on what makes people productive and what makes um, what is the difference between having self-control and not having self-control. And I found a lot of really good resources. Um, one of them being um, the book Willpower, which they're selling back there, um, which is interesting because they've figured out that um, success has long been correlated with two factors. One is intelligence and one is self-control. And self-control is the only one that we can actually in- strengthen. Um, we can't do much about our native intelligence. Um, in fact, self-control... <laughs> that's funny. In fact, self-control is the only um, characteristic measured in childhood that has any correlation with adult um, with outcomes in adults. Has anybody heard of the marshmallow study? So for those of you that haven't, um, they gave a bunch of little kids, four-year-olds, the choice between one marshmallow now and two in a while, 15 minutes. And then they, 20 years later, went and found out to a one, practically, the kids who, could, who couldn't wait for the second marshmallow um, had higher incidence of a drug problems and losing jobs and marital problems and so on. So um, this is really good news, the whole strengthening self-control thing for me, because I'd have eaten my marshmallow and then I'd stolen the other kids' marshmallows. <laughs> I'd have gone looking for the marshmallows they had in the closet. Um, the book's put out by Jay Tierney and Ray Baumeister. Jay Tierney is a New York Times is a journalist and Baumeister is a scientist. Um, it summarizes all of the data. They use artists and writers and performers. It's very relevant to what we're doing. Um, it's not cheesy self-help. I'm reading it for the third time right now. Here's a little bit of what I've learned and how I'm using it in my writing. The first, the first piece that I think is most interesting um, is that you can start really small. So if you decide, and you, ha- and you not only can start really small, but you have to start really small, um, so if you decide you want to stand up straighter, actually, let me just use an example from my own life. I took Jake's class last week on rhetoric, and I discovered that I used the F word too much. And it's very um, evidently rhetorically ambiguous. <laughs> so I've resolved to clean up my language. And this is actually one of the tasks that they give people in the studies, because evidently, uh, we've all sort of put our foot in our mouth, right? Um, it's hard to do. It's hard to pay attention to what you're saying and if you're if you're increase the attention that you're paying to what you're saying and you also want to be somebody who flosses more and stands up straighter and makes your bed and does the dishes it turns out you do all those other things too um but if you say from now on i'm not going to use the f word anymore so i'm not rhetorically ambiguous i'm going to floss and i'm not going to you know i'm going to make my bed i'm going to do the dishes chances are by the end of the week, if not by the end of the day, you're going to be eating a cheeseburger and watching a movie. Because all of those things overwhelm, they have all these words for it. It's fascinating. Decision fatigue and ego depletion, they use all these things. But it just, your brain can't handle it. But that one thing turns into success in all the other areas of your life. Um, and we can, we, can, um, we can add word count to that, to that list. The three other pieces that I'm going to give you are, that I've used myself I'm using myself, are standards, um, accountability, and monitoring. Standards, um, 
if <laughs> self-loathing is a powerful motivator, right? I hate my guts if I don't touch my work today. I can't, and it turns out from Baumeister's point of view, that is actually, um, that is about me having standards. When I meet my own standards, I meet my goals. So by using that, that's in my favor. If I'm, if I'm, uh, if I'm, if I'm actually, it's, it's useful for me to think of it that way. Um, accountability kicks in often inadvertently when we say out loud that we're going to write a novel or we're going to do, a, you know, we're going to be a poet or something like that. Um, I'll tell you that for me, virtually anything would probably have been more a welcome career goal, as far as my father was concerned, than writer. Um, probably prostitution. Um, because, I mean, anything is a more reliable source of income than writer. So over the years, it's, it's worked in my favor to be... What was the word for pride? Someone's devil pride, evil queen pride has worked in my favor to keep me going when some, doing something practical may, might have made more sense. That's accountability. Accountability is also at work when we join a writer's group or agree to write at certain times with a colleague. My partner and I meet three or four times a week to work in the same room um, when our schedules permit. And, you know, we start at 8 o'clock in the morning and we work till 3 or 4 in the afternoon and nobody takes a nap. Um, in that in that time, um, monitoring just means keeping a record, right? We all know about Trollope. Trollope is one of the people that they talk about in Willpower, who wrote 250 words every 15 minutes for two and a half hours every day. Most days, which is interesting, and I'll get to this in a second. Not every day necessarily. He had a plan given what was going on in his life. They used to, they said he took off for fox hunts. Um, <laughs> so um, he was realistic about what was going on and what he was going to be able to get done but he said that he would go back over um, we have we use the Pomodoro technique which we've kind of been evangelizing for years and we've been for since 2010 I've written down every word I've written I've, I've wrote I've kept track every single day of what I've done and Trollope's quote was, um, when, I don't miss my, when I miss my word goal, it's like a blister on my eye. When I look, down that, you know, I look down that list and I see that I didn't work. It's kind of interesting. Um, we use, like I said, the Pomodoro technique, which is this silly, stupid time management tool that's free and online and has all these um, ways of recording what you're doing and what you're thinking about and so on. Or you can just you know, write down your words. Um, for the hardcore, there's write or die. Have you guys ever heard of write or die? Where you sign up to write a certain number of words in a certain period of time and they don't save it. So if you don't make it, they delete it. (laughs) 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 Writerdie.com. So two two more of Baumeister's concepts lead this directly back to my own writing experience um, on the novel that I'm working on, um, which is proximal versus distal goals and fuzzy versus fussy goals. Um, They found that you'd think that people who are super organized and have their day planned down to the minute are more productive than people who have a vague idea of what's going on. And it's not true. Um, we, I've long labored under the notion, and I, we get it from everywhere, you know, a thousand words or whatever the number is, X number of words a day, every day, do or die, no matter what or did, did or did not happen the night before. Um, and, you know, I struggle with that. And when I read this, um, people who plan over the course of a month 
and who have realistic goals that are flexible. Now, obviously, this presumes integrity. Um, <laughs> right? It's are more successful. So I adjusted last summer, trying to finish my novel, I adjusted my work, pulled an idea from technology called sprints. Um, and I decided instead of a thousand words a day, I was going to work in three-day chunks. And I looked out a month and I said, 20,000 words over the next 30 days, 2,000 words every three days, which meant I could screw around for a day. Um, and I need that. Because that's one of the things I want to talk... I mean, I do a lot of other things to keep myself engaged. To get to the desk, I need to be feeding myself. I do visual art. I do other things. Writing is the most important thing in my life. But I have a lot of other stuff to keep myself... I've researched, reading, all those other things. That, I have a 238,000-word draft that I finished in February. And half of those words were since the middle of last summer. Because I gave myself this latitude, um, it made a huge difference for me. So um, I just want to say the self-control research um, <laughs> recommends rewards, which I think is hilarious because I'm way too impatient for that. I need bribes. I need, like, <laughs> give it to me now, and maybe then I'll sit down and work. <clears throat> um, and actually, when I was thinking about it, I, stopped, I, I decided that the whole, that whole reward, bribe, the whole the language is just a mess for me. But I do do... A bunch of things, one of them being, like I said, visual art. And I brought, I brought a bunch of stuff, because I don't know how many people do work in other disciplines, but Flannery O'Connor, you know, the Flannery O'Connor, if you want to learn to see, learn to draw. Um, I read that essay maybe 15 years ago, and I started drawing. And it's expanded into this interest. And I can go to you know, Newsland and buy old art magazines for 50 cents. And I can sit in my room by myself and see these things that aren't word-related that other people have made. And it makes me feel not connected in this sense, not in the, I've got to do something. Like, as soon as we're done talking, the party's going to break up and we have to interact. But connected to the quiet part of other people, the part that not, not the people who are making words, which is also important, but the quiet part of these artists who are making things. It's really important to me. When I'm trying to get to a place where, you know, they say plumbers don't wait to be inspired, but, you know, frankly, considering the plumbing in my house never kept me up past midnight. I'm not a plumber. I'm not... I, the plumber can go down to Home Depot and buy what they need to put in the garbage disposal. I have to make what I need. So I need to be, for myself, I don't sit around waiting for inspiration, but I do... I have learned by being honest about who I am and what I am, how to feed myself so that I want to go. Um, and it's And to get past the kind of resistance that we're talking about. And art is one of the ways that I do that. So Ball Monsters tools and um, help me create the habits that foster calm and focus attention. And my toys, my art supplies are a fetish, total fetish, buying them, touching them, all that stuff. Um, give me a sense of play. And then there's that connection. Um, because I know from my experience that once I sit down, the work will take over and create what I need um, to keep going. But I have to sit down to get there. So thanks. Apparently, um, you guys get involved now. And you know who you are. Nick Arvin, who's 
salon I adored the other night. The genre versus, yeah. Anyway, Nick. Um, this is, I, I guess initially sort of directed Stephen. Um, the, the workshop experience that you described sounded pretty awful. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I, I'd like to get you to talk about how you see the workshops and teaching and learning in workshops. Like, what's their role in that in the, that long haul? Because it seems to me. And, you know, it's particularly for a beginning writer, you know, if you go into a workshop and you, you have so much of yourself sort of set by identity and who you are tied up in that piece of work that's being workshopped that day. But no long haul, like, any individual workshop really doesn't matter that much. Um, and how, do you, like, sort of, how do you address that? Well, first of all, I, th- I think at the graduate level, um, people are often surprised at the criticism that you, you you get on the stories. You've been maybe the star of your undergraduate workshop and uh, you've always got nothing but uh, positive reinforcement. And then you get into this graduate workshop and there's n- it's not there anymore. It, it's not the kind of flattery or whatever, what the recognition. And it takes a while to adjust to that. And I I think that again, you know, the the benefit of the workshop process is that it can accelerate uh, you know your progress in a way that um, just showing it to individual friends or or whatever doesn't necessarily do that and, it, and there's no doubt that it as in my experience is trial by fire and a lot of it depends on the members of the workshop a lot of it depends on the instructor there's all these variables that go into it um, but the basic uh, process is that here's you're going to turn your work in and here's a community of people who are devoted to looking at your story and care about writing in the same way that you, you care about writing and the other thing that's very important to mention is that you do go in there, as you say, identifying with the work, that you are the work. And and so that, you know, primes you for rejection. And after you get rejected enough, or you don't get your expectations met, you start to separate yourself from the work. And that's a really healthy process. You realize that it's just a particular story or a particular section of a novel in time. It's not you. So, you know, there's that that process of of leaving your total identification uh, with your writing or yourself as a writer that I think is very healthy. And I think the workshop actually does that. You know, I think the workshop really helps you develop your critical skills. You know, to, I mean, you look at other people's work and then that helps you look at yours better. So, I mean, we suffer through a lot. I've been through many years of workshops, too, and it's it's suffering sometimes. <laughs> but I think if you can keep the long, like Stephen said, just separate yourself from your work and look at it as a piece of music you're trying to learn or whatever. <laughs> so, I'm not sure I have anything to add. I don't think I have anything to add. Yeah, I just Give it to me. Uh, uh, is that there's not a lot of venues where you're you're looking at text in the same way you do as in a writing workshop. It's not going to happen in a literature course. You're going to be interpreting. You're going to be thinking about themes, and suddenly you're in this uh, this venue where you're looking at process. You're looking at how something's put together. You're not so concerned about what it means or how it fits into the canon or if it's naturalism or realism or anything like that. All you want to know is that how does it work. On on the page, and it forces your attention to that text. So I think that's another sort of benefit of it. And people.
people aren't necessarily used to that way of looking. They're used to judging liter- literature uh, uh, in, a, in a certain way or interpreting in a certain way rather than looking at that, you know, the, you know how does it work? How, does this, how do you make this thing? Great to be here. I'm on the faculty too. I'm a, I'm a, I write poetry, and I, I have your, your answer. I have the solution to this. First, I want to say that's why we're all here. The talks were great. The talks were great, but I, I think you guys, uh, and I look around the room and I see it's filled with fiction writers. I don't see a lot of a lot of poets here. And I just want to say I think you guys are still sort of enthralled to this notion that size matters. <laughs> like 15 summits. <laughs> I'm happy if I get a couplet and then I go to the beach. <laughs> so my advice would be to you know, write more write more poems because they will places. But, but uh, to uh, there were two words that I thought of when you were speaking that I, I, I'd ask you to comment on them. Of course I'm being facetious. There are enough poets anyways and nobody makes any money so don't do it. But the uh, the uh, you, you guys addressed this all very well, and I thought that the, the laughter of response was a kind of anxious response to this notion. But there are these primal emotions that weren't quite named that I think are, I think are very important because I experience them myself and I find them happy. I find them useful. And one is anger, and the other is stubbornness. And I, I don't mean rage, but uh, what do you have to say? I mean, a, a productive kind of anger where the resistance is there and you really have to marshal your resources um, to get over it. I can't tell you how many times I've been trying to write a poem and it wouldn't come and I finally got angry enough with the language, with myself, with the waste of time that something cracked and uh, language began to happen. So just to, all I just do is put the words out there and say what do you think about anger and uh, stubbornness as tools in your writing process? <laughs> Yes. Um, I, you know, I am angry and stubborn. I think, but I think the first thing I thought of was um, one of the points that got edited out of this because I didn't want to talk about because eight eight to ten minutes. How much can you say? But um, how much there is to this work that requires. just confrontation. Just who am I? Um, and maybe ever, maybe that's not true for all writers. I haven't sat down and talked to a lot of people about this, but it's certainly been true for me. And I do not mean in a cheesy self-help way. I mean, what what do I have to say? What's mine to say? What form am I going to say it in? What do I need in order to make this? Um, what do I want to make? I mean, those questions, because David David has this quote, you know, we, we're sculptors who make our own clay. Uh, because we're making our own clay, I'm the maker. And my anger and my stubbornness and my neurosis and my what I'm what I'm interested in getting over and what I haven't gotten over and what hasn't even occurred to me yet and um, all that stuff is all part of it. But I think the bottom line is um I wish I could just sort of sit here quietly for a minute and just listen to everything everybody's already said because I think it's already been I think it's already been said. For me the bottom line is 
Okay, I'm going to risk being over earnest for a second. One of the things I do every single day is what are my priorities? Creativity in my life is number one. And what does that mean? That means I do a bunch of things that I might not otherwise do. I want to do this more than I want to do anything else. So I manage that crap. Um. (laughs) I appreciate you, David, saying that about anger. And I've gotten some of my best writing when I've been really pissed off. Yeah, I have a one passage in my book, Raw Edges, about I was on a bicycle trip, and we were in the worst weather that Iowa had had since 1903. <laughs> There's two of us, uh, women who are not jocks, uh, pedaling through Iowa, and it's pouring rain, thunder and lightning. We were even on the edge of a tornado one day and had to get ditch our, get in a ditch. And, and then a mile down the road, there was a truck that had been, uh, you know, upended. <laughs> but, I mean, we were, it was horrible. But I really remember that cleansing moment when I got so mad on the bike trip and I just, I, I call it the bitch goddess. I just, ah, it, it got huger than I ever believed I could get with anger. And that and, and was so cleansing. And I, I mean, it, that's one of my favorite moments. And, and I don't, I try not to get angry. I try to be real copacetic and everything. But I really think that's valuable to get to that place where you're feeling some real passion. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I think anger for writers is a, is a complicated notion. I think it gets uh, it vacillates between being turned into envy or being depression. When it's you know outwardly directed, it's envy. It's en- it's envy at other writers. It's it's anger at you know why your story got rejected or you know publishers don't understand it or they don't appreciate your kind of writing. And then you know in the same day, it can be turned inward that you uh, you have no talent. As I was saying about the student who said. He's, he's afraid he's going to knock and nobody's going to be home. You, you have to face that hollowness inside. Um, you know, there's, there's some, I guess, benefit to... I, I'm now 62 years old, and I've been doing this for a while. And what I'm really proud of is not what I've written and I, or anything like that, but that I'm still doing it and that I still uh, am here. And uh, after a while... What you learn if you keep doing it is that, oh, I've been in this stuck place before. I know what it feels like. And I didn't know that as a younger writer. I didn't know how you could get stuck and get out of it. All I thought was, this is the real time I'm going to be stuck. I'm never going to get out of it. And now I've learned that I've been stuck so many times that you you go beyond it. You you evolve behind it. And there's a, you know, that is the antidote to the anger. It just it just neutralizes the anger because you know you'll get beyond it because all of the frustration and anger it comes from feeling you have no willpower left or you will never get out of this. I just want to clarify that I didn't mean getting angry at a, at a person, for example, but no. merely the anger as a form of stubbornness. Why can't I get this sentence right and I couldn't go back to it? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I just think it's displaced. You know, it, it can it gets diffused out there, you know, find has to find some kind of object. And I really have to be convinced that this time is different from every other time, which tends to happen after a while. And then I find myself sort of giving up and just feeling like, I know I can't do this. I know I'm way down there on the ground, and this thing I'm trying to do is way over there somewhere high up in the air. And I'm, I'm not even in the same universe. And then... 
I just sort of sit down and there's a kind of blankness that things come out of it. It just, I'm not really trying, I'm just, I, I mean, I sort of want to say noodling. <laughs> yeah. um, or something, just, there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of giving up of everything. Mm -hmm. And then, then so I, that sort of clears whatever the block was out. Um, but you have to really believe it. <laughs> you can, there's no shortcut. There's no, you know, oh, I'm going to tell myself that I'm giving up. and then. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Well, I, I think what you're describing is this process of getting your ego out of the way and just letting go. And um, that letting go is, is something that every writer experiences at some point. You just surrender, as you say. And you, you know, are, you know you're not trying to overdetermine the work. You're, you're just uh, allowing it to, to be what it is. And I, I think also you're just accepting a, a kind of like, um, you, you're accepting the rawness of the process. You're accepting the roughness of it. You're accepting the fact that you'll have to do another draft. You're accepting the fact that, as I was saying, the next sentence might be worse after. You're, you're giving up on some kind of fantasy that you're going to reach a certain level that you'll never you know, have problems with, the, with this particular work. <laughs> Uh, somebody said to me once, I can't remember, I read it, I reserve the right to write badly. And I, I have used that a lot because a lot of times I'll start trying to be really good, you know, in the day. And, and, and so when you say let go and, and, and really mean that, it's like it, this, none of this matters. It's like that thing I was saying, at night I get so mad I'm never going to write again. And then somehow it clears the block out the next morning. But um, I wanted to say that. Hmm. Brilliant thought. <laughs> I'll tell you what the brilliant thought was uh, for, for her. I, I want to follow up on what Kimberly said, which is these, like, how do you, you know, we can sit here and talk about it and talk about it and intellectualize it, but, you know, how do you, how do you actually do it in some ways? And it, in, in, in many ways, it's, it's sort of like uh, you, you have to find s some kind of community that supports you in in the endeavor. Um, you you can't like do it in a in a vacuum. That's the really important thing. And uh, you know, as I was listening to Kimberly, I was thinking about an article in the Atlantic recently about behaviorism, and they were talking about in particular weight control and how much you know how these programs of reinforcement. You know, the best thing that works for losing weight is if. You don't try and do it on your own if it's reinforced, if you set reasonable goals. And so much of what you do as a writer is done in isolation. And you think that you have to do it in isolation. And I, I think that's the difficult part uh, about it, about succeeding, because you think that it's all on your shoulders somehow. And I, otherwise, how are you going to do it? And you, you, there, there's no way that you can't, you have to get support for it from somebody. It's right unto you, but I remembered my brilliant thought, <laughs> which, which now I'm really in trouble. <laughs> um, so, but I just I, there's a few little things you can do, I think, to get into that place where you feel like you've just abandoned that tremendous judge that sits on your shoulder all the time. But I sometimes will turn on music and dance. And, and and literally have my body loosen up and uh, that and then I can go and the language seems to be better. I used to read William Faulkner because he's such a, a fountain of language. And after I read him for about five minutes, then it 
when I went to write, my language was better. So I, I and uh, then of course you've heard about free writing, where you just sit and write, write anything that comes to your mind. But just kind of some kind of warm up exercise or some something. But I think dancing and and really being playful. I'm so sad about this world. I feel like people have forgotten how to be playful. Maybe it's me, but I think being playful is really important. Shitty first draft. (laughs) David? Uh, Everything you guys have said has been dripping with artistic integrity. Uh, So I want to suggest something on the other end of the spectrum, uh, which is movie previews. Uh, I find to be incredibly inspiring for some reason. I love watching movie trailers when I feel stuck, uh, which feels incredibly superficial and, for me at least, is really effective. And I'm curious if any of you are that low. (laughs) What's your current favorite movie trailer? Brave. Oh, isn't that (laughs) The arrow going into the arrow? (laughs) I can make a confession about that. uh, uh, It's not movie trailers, but I have to put on Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas and get up and dance in my sort of awkward way. And I don't know why, but I've been using it for 25 years, ever since the story song came out. And it's like, whatever gets you going, David. been talking about, you know, there's the old saying, writing is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. And apart from what inspires you to put in the perspiration, um, like Martin Mandela's, I mean, what about that 1%? I mean, don't we often have blocks because we don't really have inspiration? And how do you get it? I mean, sometimes you sit down to write and nothing's there. You're stale. You know, maybe nothing's coming in. I think everybody in this room probably has a different answer to that, but and I'd love to hear everybody else. Um, I have, I mean, I have a tote bag full of art magazines and other people's journals and um, the book bench. The uh, New Yorker blog is um, every every day they post something, but they um, they have uh, in the news, and it's all it's always um, they'll have a little you know six or seven news items that are books or writer writing related. Um, I could list a bunch of different things that work for me. I think what's really significant is that you need to figure out what works for you. Um, there are t- Tons and tons and tons of resources. What makes you feel creative? I'm not talking about resources. I'm talking about what happens in your life that makes you, like, gives you inspiration. Well, I don't know if this answers your question, Vicki, other than the Martha and the Vandellas, which I don't see what's necessary other than that. Uh, but, and I would suggest everybody try it. Um, uh, I mean, I like have these three produce boxes that I've been carrying around from every place I've moved, and really they're since I've been 25 years old. And what I find when I'm stuck, and I am really in a stuck place now, I have a new book coming out, and it's just a big blank page, and I am so angry about not being able to write and frustrated and feeling impotent. Okay, I'll stop there. Uh, but, you know, I... Uh, 
you know, I just go into those produce boxes and I'm reading years of journals and I'm looking over old letters and I realize what I'm really doing is getting back in touch with my obsessions again. And I, as I said, sort of alluded to in my, my remarks, you really have to honor those obsessions and you have to find that conduit into those obsessions because that is the inspirations, inspiration for you because that is unique to you. And I don't know, you know what your produce box is or what it is, but everybody has a way of reconnecting and plugging back into that. And to me, you know, the, the genesis, the seeds of stories, they're somehow back in those produce boxes, even though I've read them over and over again, those journals. But they tune me up in some way. And my imagination is locked up in there somehow. It's the external correlative, the external magnification of something internal that I'm trying to get out. Uh, I just want to say that for my own life is when I have a problem I need to solve. And I, my first novel was about my grandmother who I'd always heard stories about. She was in a mental hospital for a year. And then the, the people there called up the, her sister and said, she's not mentally ill, she's dying of a broken heart. So that, and I heard that as a little girl, so I mean, that's what made me want to write this novel because I wanted to figure that out. And I, um, how I got cultured was about growing up Mormon in Las Vegas and wanting to be a showgirl. And <laughs> I guess a dancer, not the showgirl. Uh, there's a difference. <laughs> but anyway, and I, I, I never thought that we were cultured at all growing up in southern Nevada. Because it was like, we were the end of the earth. They put the atomic bomb test there. You know, it was the end of the earth. Well, of course we can do an atomic bomb test. Nobody lives there. So um, it was like, are we cultured or is the only culture in the world in Paris and New York? So for a lot of years, it was like I had this big thing like, golly, are we worth anything? And finally, of course, I realized we have our own culture, which, which was interesting. But So I think having a problem to solve or something to figure out is what has gotten me started in a lot of my books. Yeah, and I, I think, too, that it's an image, it's something you hear, it's a line of dialogue. If you have your antenna up, I remember I was sitting, I'm, not, I'm pretty secular, but I was sitting in a high holidays in the synagogue, and the rabbi was uh, talking, and he said, um, he quoted Martin Buber, and he said, this is the unity of God. Wherever I take hold of a shred of it, I hold on to the whole of it. And um, that phrase probably meant nothing to anybody else in, in the synagogue, but out of that came a whole novel, because it tied into something I suddenly saw a character who was desperate and his whole life is he had done something so terrible that you know he was trying to hold on to a shred of god he was trying to survive and that's what i mean that's the inspiration it's out there and you're you're just kind of like looking you're desperately looking for it maybe you're looking for it in those produce boxes but you're also looking for it out there and you're listening in a way that other people who are not writers or not artists are, are listening you know you're listening for some kind of sound one writer described it as you're trying to find Follow a whisper, you know, and you're listening for that particular whisper. Okay. Robin had a question. Well, I, had, I mean, that that you just said reminds me of the way I describe it for myself is I'm looking for the crack in the sidewalk. That it's the thing when I'm walking along, it's the thing I trip over. Where I go, oh, that's a thing. But what I was going to, I had my hand up before about is that. Um, on the subject of inspiration and working through blocks, I have this theory which the people who are in my class have already heard, so I apologize for that. But that all of us who write, and many of us who don't, but all of us who write are people who at some point in our lives have felt significantly silenced. That there's something 
that we couldn't tell. There's some reality or some truth that we felt we had to hold back. And that the, the blockages, for me, the way I've come to understand them and the sort of fight between blockage and inspiration is the fight between that urge to tell and the voice, the inhibiting voices. And, you know, I hear even in the story about South Nevada, it's a sort of, it's a different kind of silencing, but it's a kind of, we don't exist silencing. And the urge to, to exist, you know, let me have my voice out there. And, you know, I don't know if this is exactly inspiration or anger, but it's a little bit of each, that, that in blockage times, I think what I found really helpful is not so much you know, which daily habits am I doing and what, how many words am I writing? But who's trying to quiet me? Who's trying to make me shut up? And who is always me, ultimately, but whose voice have I internalized? Mm -hmm. So that's just my Thank you, Robin. Uh, well, you know, in a way, it's a little like confession. Writing or in, in except it's not confession just to a priest. It's this kind of public confession that you have to aesthetically make art in, in some way to, into this artistic product. And you know, for me, I'm always trying to find that connection between imagination and my own experience. And out of that, you know, comes this kind of intimate uh, expression that you know that I you try and put out there in the world and I think that's why you know, it's so hard because to you it's this it's intimate and you're vulnerable about it and and you're ready to withdraw it but you know you can't stop yourself on the other hand like you say there's the there's the pressure to tell to disclose that 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 will to disclose you know Either. Oh, here? Who's this? this one? Oh, I think it's me. Okay, I guess I have to say something. <laughs> 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 um, I don't know. I, I love that in a way. It, it, it's such a you know, delicious kind of feeling. Um, and sometimes it's a very painful feeling. But that, you know, that sense of secrecy, you know, that you're going to. You know, you're going to start, you know, letting this, whatever it is out, whatever you're writing, you know. And uh, and then I, you know, there's always that feeling as you're letting go into that, which is that I, I tell myself, you know, I don't have to show this to anyone. Mm -hmm. I know, of course, Stephen saw it. I can't wait to show it to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it's real like that, right? But... You know, I don't, I don't really have to. Mm. So I can go for it. You know, I could just, you know, just let go completely. Yeah. You know, just see where this wanders all over. It's a it's like there's this naughtiness of writing where there's the thrill of doing it and then the equal fear of discovery. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you had your... your well, I, uh, I'm sort of struggling with a problem right now that 
I've been working on a, a middle grade novel for <laughs> four years, and uh, and it has gone through at least three revisions. I mean, total revisions. Um, and I've always I I've sought out workshops and things, and I've always sort of prided myself on being willing to take criticism and willing to not be rigid. But at this point, I'm feeling sort of buffeted about. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, I don't know, like I need somehow to be able to go back to my own I just think this is really essential what you're talking about and it's it's after you be in work, go to workshop or you listen to somebody else you lose your original impulse for writing the story and so I always tell my students to say what did you want to do in the first place and are you doing that so ask that of you of yourself and, and then go back and say where is the thing that I love and it really, we have to get tough because all these voices are talking around and you want to be good and you want to make it and all that. So, um, But really, really go to yourself. What do you want to say? And it took me a long time to get that. I come from a Mormon background and for years I had teachers, good teachers, tell me not to write about it. They said people don't want to hear about God or they don't want to hear about Mormons or whatever. And Mormons are considered very weird and cultish by some people. But ultimately I had to come to that place where I say, you know, I know this culture. This matters to me, and maybe it doesn't matter to anybody else, but it matters to me, and I want to tell this the best way I can. So, just really trust you. Okay? Uh, you want to? No, no. Go ahead. Um, I just would say that, uh, you know, when I finished, I f- finished an MFA in 99, and it was a few years before... I was even interested in showing anybody and talking to anybody about writing. Um, I think we're there to learn craft. We're we're there to learn all the things that we're not, you know, that we're talking about when we're not talking about inspiration. Um, We're talking about, but one of the things that's really key that they don't teach us is how to get quiet and how to sift through no nobody knows how to fin I'm finishing a book of poems right now I just got a bunch of feedback from people that I really respect and it's conflicting across the board it's conflicting and those poems are you know 85% of the way there it never stops um, the only thing I know to do is get quiet and evaluate what I know of the craft and what I know about my practice about I mean, this is my work, and I've been doing it for a long time, and I've, you know, um, so we're, we're here to learn the craft. They, they're not going to write your poem for you or your story or whatever it is. You're going to do it yourself, and you need, you need, sometimes we need to walk away from them, them, all of them. Um, yeah, 
I, I just want to, you know, I can hear the emotion in your voice, and I think everybody can relate to it in here. And, you know, one of my favorite poem, uh, poets is William Blake. And uh, one of the things uh, about him was that he had this idea that um, there was a period of innocence that you pass through. And, of course, he has, uh, you know, songs of innocence and then experience. And then after that comes a new kind of innocence that's tempered by the experience. And I think when you first are writing, you're in this innocent world and nobody has weighed in on it. And you feel a kind of freedom in it. And then that gets marred by the experience of getting criticism and finding out that, you know, there's, it's, it's like a, a child realizing he's not the center of the universe or something. But then you come through that. And that's what I was trying to say about sticking for the long haul. And, you, and that, that experience, you get back that innocence again, but it has that experience. And, you know, you're at the stage now where you're, you're overweighed by the, the experience, but you do go through that stage and you get back to this innocent stage. It's not the same original innocence. It's just a different evolvement of it. Right, one one of the, I thought the comment was very compelling and powerful. I don't know your name, but you made the comment to my brother. One of the things I've found over many decades is that when I find a really great editor, an editor I really trust, um, I hold on like a leech. You know, everybody needs a good editor, but you can't let everyone be your editor. And when you find someone who you deeply trust, who, you know, you have to trust those editors as much as you trust, you know, your spouse. Well, maybe more actually. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I would say. Find people who you really trust. It they may come from anywhere. It may not even be a literary person, but somebody who really has good judgment. And then let the others go. You're only going to find a few of them in your life. And listen, listen to those people. And then don't always do what they say. <laughs> Finding a good editor, somebody you really trust, and who, so you not you feel secure in the relationship is, is pretty important. Well, sadly, um, it's 9:30. And, but we'll all be around, right? Thank you, guys. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.